sermon passage for us this evening, which is taken from uh, Luke chapter 22. Uh, It's quite a long passage. Uh, Last week when we read a long chunk of Luke, Emma gave us the helpful strategy of saying, imagine that you're one of the characters um, in the story to help you follow along. Um, So I thought I'd just add to the fun strategies of reading from God's Word, Um, particularly in the Gospels, I find it really helpful to visualise the passage, Uh, so kind of the prompt, make a movie in your mind, um, would be helpful here, not so helpful with the genealogy in um, Genesis, but for this text type, very appropriate, so if that's something that might help you follow along, um, see if you can make it a movie in your mind, Um, let's read together. Now, the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers, uh, officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When do you want us to prepare it for? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For it is the greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves. Sorry, for who is greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves? It is not the one who is at the table, but I among you 
I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me, deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for reading that, Sarah. Uh, good evening, everybody. If I've not met you before, my name is Adam, uh, and I'm a student minister here at All Saints, uh, and yep, I'll be teaching that bit of God's Word to us now, but first, how about I pray? So please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a God who speaks. Please prepare our ears to listen to you, our eyes to see you more clearly, our hearts that we may grow in our love and trust of you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, weddings, aren't they nice? They all have their memorable and momentous occasions. I can think of a wedding I went to a couple of years ago that was unlike a wedding I'd ever been to before. It was a traditional Coptic Orthodox wedding. It began with some elderly ladies walking to the church playing tambourines and uh, singing in a high-pitched shrill. Then came in some men dressed in decorative robes and hats, swinging incense from side to side. Then entered my friend, a white Caucasian male who stuck out like a sore thumb. The service began with a priest chanting and singing in a language I could not understand. There was so much I could experience, but so little I could understand. Thankfully, partway through, the priest broke the mystery and intrigue, and in English said to us, for the benefit of the groom's friends and family, but he might as well have said, for the benefit of the confused-looking white people on that half of the room. There are many times in life that without an explanation, it's impossible to understand what is going on. Whether the barrier is due to language or culture, custom, expectations or experience. From the outside, it's easy to misunderstand the significance on what's, of what's happening on the inside. Uh, it's easier to keep quiet so your ignorance is not brought out into the open. You need an insider to explain what's happening so that you might understand. Now, it's the same with Jesus' death. It's not until someone explains why Jesus had to die that the Christian faith makes any sense. Thankfully for us, the night before Jesus died, he ate a meal with his 12 closest friends in an upstairs room in Jerusalem. Over this meal, Jesus teaches his disciples the significance of his death. So what did Jesus understand to be the significance of his death for him and for those who follow him? 
Well, we're going to unpack the narrative uh, this evening in three stages. First, we'll look at the plan to destroy in verses 1 to 6, then the plan to save, verses 7 to 23, and then lastly, the plan applied in verses 24 to 38. So let's begin with the plan to destroy, verses 1 to 6. In these verses, we see the culmination of evil opposition to Jesus in Luke's account. Uh, But verse 1 first begins with a time reference. Read with me. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. Jerusalem would have been packed. Jews from far and wide would have come into uh, into the town. It would have been buzzing. The plan to kill Jesus, first we see, was religiously motivated. In verse 2 it says, The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Now this is not new in Luke's account. Uh, It has been made clear over and over again that the religious leaders want Jesus dead. The power and influence they once had is being threatened by Jesus. Jesus, uh, the crowds are listening to him. They thought by killing Jesus they would regain control. They were afraid of his influence. They were planning to destroy him. It's just that up until now, they haven't known how it would happen. Well, this all changes in verse 3, where we read, Satan enters Judas. Now, I think it's helpful for us to remember that back in chapter 4, Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Um, And in in that temptation, Jesus was being offered uh, a way to sort of get power without God's plan, listening to Satan. But after Jesus resists this temptation, it says in chapter 4, verse 13, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. By telling us that Satan has entered Judas, Luke is showing that now this is the beginning of the opportune time that Satan has been waiting for. But we mustn't forget that the plan to kill Jesus was carried out in real time by a real person, And worst of all, one of Jesus' closest friends. He was betrayed by Judas. When Jesus first called his disciples back in chapter 6, Judas is described as the one who became a traitor. We just haven't known who he would betray. Well, if you went to Sunday school, you might know that. But in the narrative, just imagine we're reading it for the first time. Uh, Judas had heard Jesus teach. He'd seen him before miracles. Yet Judas chose to go to the religious leaders and accept a bribe uh, to hand over Jesus to them. And what we read is that that would happen at an opportune time. What we're we're seeing here is Luke is packing the, the, the scene right before us, the opposition before Jesus. We should feel a sense of bewilderment, I guess. There's so much against Jesus. There's the religious leaders. There's Satan, there's Judas. They're all conspiring for this plan to destroy Jesus. As the opposition to Jesus is laid out clearly before us, we are forced to consider, what will Jesus do? Does he have the power to stop this plan? If Jesus ends up dead, is it because those who planned and plotted, schemed and bargained have won, that they will destroy him? We all face times in life when it feels like we're confronted to the opposition of God's plan. Times when it seems impossible for God to save, or God to act, or God to forgive. Times when we're confronted with the evil of our own hearts, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Or times when the evil of others is thrust upon us and we feel overwhelmed. At these times, sometimes the goodness and power of God feels impossible to see, because the reality of evil clouds our vision. 
But you see, once we see the plan to destroy Jesus, we can now lift our eyes to see how God will use this plan to bring about his plan to save. It's in and through the darkness of the plan to destroy that the plan to save shines all the brighter. So next we get to the plan to save, verses 7 to 23. Uh, With this opposition, Jesus must prepare his disciples. He knows that the attacks directed on him are going to ricochet onto those who follow him. Jesus prepares his disciples so they can understand and remember God's plan to use Jesus' death to bring about salvation. Uh, We're told in verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Again, another time reference that's important for us to note. The Passover was a yearly festival instituted by God to remind his people that he had rescued them from being slaves in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. The Jews remembered that God spared the lives of the firstborn children if there was blood painted on the door frames of the house. The festival involved eating bread without yeast to remind the people that the Israelites needed to leave Egypt very quickly. The events of this evening happened on the day that we're told the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. In verses 8 to 13, Jesus gets Peter and John to make preparations for the Passover meal that that he will share with his disciples. Jesus knew that there'd be a man carrying a water jug and that if they followed this man with a water jug, they'd get to a house. And once they get to that house, he knew that the owner of that house would have a room in an upstairs Uh, part of the house, ready for the Passover. And what we read in verse 13 is they found things just as Jesus had said. He knew every little detail. As Jesus knew, knows the exact details for how to find this upper room to share the Passover, he knows that this Passover is going to be radically different to any he'd, he'd celebrated before. Jesus knows that his death is going to have eternal significance. That's what we see next. After all the preparations are made, we're told the hour came and Jesus reclined at the table with his disciples. He now teaches his disciples that the Passover has a future and final fulfillment beyond this world in the eternal kingdom of God. Verse 15 says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, Jesus said. Jesus explains that this meal, which they'd been eating looking backwards to the Exodus, from now on they'll be eating looking forward to God's final deliverance. We see this in the repetition in verses 16 and 17. First, until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God, and verses 17, until the kingdom of God comes. The Passover was celebrated looking backwards to when the Jews were delivered from Egypt into the land of Canaan. But the Lord's Supper will now be remembered, looking forward to God's ultimate deliverance from sin and death into eternal life. Jesus is able to lead the ultimate exodus. He will lead his followers into his eternal kingdom. Jesus now goes on to inaugurate the Lord's Supper. He explains that he will die as a willing sacrifice. Jesus takes the bread and says in verse 19, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is instigating a new form of remembrance. 
the lamb that had the lamb that was killed on this very day of the Passover was an unwilling sacrifice. Jesus, on the other hand, is willing. He will give his body. The lamb back then had to be without blemish or imperfection because it would point forward to Jesus, the lamb without sin, the one who takes away the sin of the world, as John says. Um, Peter, one of the twelve sitting around this very table in that upstairs room, will go on to write, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to, get, put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus goes on in verse 20. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The blood of the lamb painted on the door frames of Egypt were looking forward to this ultimate sacrifice. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are accepting the cleansing that only Jesus' blood can bring. As the judgment in Egypt passed over the houses covered in blood, so too those who put their faith in Jesus, uh, God's judgment passes over them because of Jesus' blood. This is the new covenant, the new agreement that God is making with humanity. In verses 21 to 22, Jesus goes on to say, But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine at the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. We know already that this hand is the hand that's already received payment from the religious leaders. It's Judas's hand here at the table. This must have shocked Judas. How does Jesus know of his scheming plan? Jesus will go as it has been decreed. This is not Judas's decree. This is the eternal decree of God the Father. And you see, if Jesus knows this decree... He is allowing Judas to betray him. He is allowing the religious leaders to capture him. He is allowing Satan to think that death has victory over him. But Jesus gives his life. No one takes it from him. Jesus has the authority to lay down his life, given to him from the Father, as he has the authority to raise his life back up again. As we share in the bread and juice, we are remembering God's plan to save cannot be thwarted. Jesus has already died. He has already been raised to life. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, God intends that by eating the bread and drinking the juice that sustains our physical bodies, our souls will be nourished, refreshed, delighted, gladdened, and strengthened by Christ. It's not in the act of eating and drinking but in the reality that those who put their faith in Jesus are rescued from death to life. Jesus died in the place of sinners. This is the plan to save, the plan that reconciles sinful humanity into right relationship with God, which begins now and lasts into eternity. And lastly, we get the plan applied, verses 21 to 38. Now, Jesus and his disciples remain seated at this table in the upstairs room, you can imagine that the disciples can still see the cups. Maybe they can even still taste the bread in their, I'm guessing, beards. Yet their hearts are so far from understanding. They don't understand the significance of Jesus' death for them. God plans, God's plan to save must change their lives. Jesus must teach them that they will need to rethink greatness. They will need humility and they'll need courage. So let's see that. After the disciples start arguing about who is the greatest, Jesus says in verse 24, 
a dispute, oh sorry, it says, uh, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. It makes no sense. Just moments before, Jesus has explained that he will sacrificially lay down his life. He will give his life for them. Yet their proud and selfish hearts turn to competition. Who amongst them is the greatest? Here, Jesus must redefine greatness. He gives them a familiar example that also makes sense to us. Those who rule here on earth seem great because they exercise authority from those under them. They benefit from those under them. That is worldly greatness. But Jesus turns that upside down. People who follow Jesus must be marked by sacrificial service, not prideful competition. Who among them is the greatest? Well, that should have been obvious to them. It's Jesus. Jesus is the model of greatness. As Jesus says in verse 27, I am among you as one who serves. In verse 29, Jesus says, I confer on you, you a kingdom as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. It's not by self-promotion or competition that anyone will eat and drink at Jesus' uh, heavenly banquet. Entry into God's kingdom is conferred, that is, it's assigned or graciously given by Jesus. I guess the question for us to consider is, has Jesus reshaped our vision of greatness? Our hearts yearn for worldly recognition and success. We love to hear the applause and praise of others. But Jesus' death must change our ambitions, our hopes, our dreams and our desires. Through faith in Jesus, we are gifted a seat at his table. We enter through his service, not our greatness. We must serve others as our Lord has first served us. Next, Jesus teaches about humility. The death of Jesus means we can't over-realize our own ability. Simon Peter says of himself, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. But Jesus replies, Peter, you will deny me. Jesus knows Peter is not ready. The only reason Jesus, uh, Peter, sorry, the only reason Peter will not end up like Judas is that Jesus has prayed for Peter and defended him from Satan's attack. Jesus has prayed that in the midst of Peter's unfaithfulness, his faith will not fail. God will use Peter to encourage the rest of the disciples and grow the early church. That's what we come to see in Luke's next book, the book of Acts. Jesus doesn't pray that this temptation will be removed from Peter because Jesus knows that through it, Peter's faith will more solidly rest on Jesus, not on himself. I wonder, when do you find yourself tempted to turn to your own achievements, efforts, or abilities to earn right standing with God? In light of Jesus' sacrificial death, it's impossible to conclude that we earn a place in his kingdom. We understand the significance of Jesus' death in our place when we are confronted with our sinfulness and we deny his lordship in our lives. We shouldn't run from our doubts, struggles and hardship into bold confidence like Peter or bold self-confidence. Rather, we must take heart and we can be encouraged that God still uses people. Past mistakes don't disqualify them from service in his kingdom, but rather prepare them for it. We should allow our constant failure to remind us daily and take, draw us to our knees as we depend on our Saviour, Jesus. Jesus' death changes everything. Ahead of Jesus and his disciples is great persecution, 
and they will need courage. In the past, when Jesus sent out his disciples, they didn't need, they, they didn't need a purse, a bag or sandals, yet they lacked nothing. They had everything they needed. But now things have changed. Jesus' disciples, disciples will need a purse. They'll need a bag, but now they'll need a sword. It's a radical shift in their life and ministry because of the radical shift in Jesus' life and ministry. They will face extreme opposition and danger. Jesus knows they will need courage. Um, it's quite humorous when they run off and try to find the swords. They're like, Jesus, we've got two swords. Uh, Peter will go on to use one of these swords to cut off the ear of the people coming to destroy Jesus, um, to arrest Jesus. Uh, but Jesus makes it very clear there that the swords are not for a physical battle. Jesus is illustrating a radical change of affairs. Jesus says in verse 37, it, uh, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that all this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 53. He understands himself to be the suffering servant by whose wounds others are healed. We see here Jesus understands that he must die. He must be handed over. He must suffer the punishment that he did not deserve. These words spoken some 500 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah now find their fulfillment on the lips of Jesus just moments before he dies. Jesus concludes, that's enough. He knows it's time to move from the upstairs room towards the Mount of Olives, into the open, where Judas can lead the religious leaders to him with a kiss. Where do you muster the strength in the Christian life? When hardship and opposition comes, what do you instinctively reach for, for protection, for comfort, for courage? We don't need swords, but we do need courage. The life of a Christian is a constant battle against the threats of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul uses the imagery of Christians putting on the armor of God. The sword is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. When our courage is fading, we must reach for God's Word. In it, we'll find comfort, we'll find courage, we'll be reminded of our Savior who died for us. There are many times in life that without an explanation, it's impossible to understand what's going on. Jesus' death is no different. In the upstairs room in Jerusalem, with bread and wine, Jesus taught his disciples that through his death, the plan to save would be accomplished. This passage shows us a God who is powerful enough to use human opposition for his good purposes. A God who uses the plan to destroy to bring about the plan to save. May we trust and cling to Jesus, the one who accomplished this plan for our salvation. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a God who saves, a God who rescues, and a God who acts in and through your Son. Thank you that from eternity you have had a plan to save and redeem a people for yourself. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, help us to be grateful for Jesus' body given and blood poured out so that we could be saved. Father, thank you that putting our trust in Jesus means your judgment can pass over us for the sin that we commit. Help us remember the significance of Jesus' death until we feast forever in your eternal banquet in heaven. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.